methods that will be used to do it. The ritual points to the reality of our so great salvation, which we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would, in your Bibles, please turn this morning to Galatians chapter 20. Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, not Galatians 20. Who, who knew there were only six chapters in Galatians? <laughs> Jerry, Jerry knew. In this little special on the riches of our grace, of God's grace that we have in salvation, we're talking about our union with Christ. It doesn't matter even if you're baptized by water compared to the concept that it points to, that it portrays. I really want to emphasize this. I was a believer for 30 years before I was baptized ritually. I had been baptized by the Holy Spirit at age three when I first trusted in Christ. And I wasn't baptized until uh, age 30 um, here in, uh, at Hopeville by the former pastor of Preston City Bible Church, the weekend of my ordination. And I was actually at that moment prepared to pastor despite the fact that I hadn't been baptized. Robbie Dean asked me, how many baptisms are you going to do as the pastor before you yourself are baptized? And I said, uh, none, I guess. So he said, well, we better do it. And uh, it was because there was a confusion. In church history, uh, it has generally been accepted by all believers in Christ that Christ tells us to do this ritual portraying our union with Jesus Christ. But there has been a movement that got some, some traction. It's still out there. And if you're part of this movement, I don't mean to speak pejoratively, pejoratively of you, even though I'm going to say things that I disagree with that, that, that you may hold. The movement within the frame of back to the Bible, let's let the Bible speak for itself, let's inductively conclude what it's saying, that movement of dispensationalism has some outliers in a movement, a sub-movement called hyper-dispensationalism or mid-acts dispensationalism, or uh, there are other names for it, ultra-dispensationalism. And the idea is that when you get to Paul, Saul of Tarsus gets flipped in Acts chapter 9, that changes the arrangement of God's order in the age in which we live, because we're, we're recognizing different orders of God's uh, revelation and our responsibilities through history. And so what God expected of Abraham is different from what God told Moses and the children of Israel at Sinai. Different revelation, different expectations, same method of salvation by grace through faith in the promise of Messiah, but different expectations because new revelation. And since Paul is a new work of God in that he is the apostle, the Jewish apostle of Christ to the Gentiles, the theory of the hyper or mid-axis dispensationalist is that we have a new order within even the church age that is Pauline, and we're Pauline Christians with that said, the fact that Paul restates Jesus' instructions for the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians, a lot of times mid-Acts dispensationalists will say, okay, so we're supposed to do the Lord's table because Paul said so. And everything about Christianity is attempted to be pushed through the lens of Paul's epistles. And I don't subscribe to this view for a couple of really important reasons. And we just did more than two years on the Christian life of Paul. I believe Paul is an apostle of Christ like Peter and James and John. 
I think Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that Christ is, uh, is a minister of Pauline Christianity. I think Paul is a minister of Christ. And I also don't believe, that's the first line, is that you don't want to have a contradiction between Paul and the others. Now, Luther struggled with Paul and James because of a misreading of James 2. Not a misreading of Paul and justification, but of James and what James means by justification in James 2. There is no contradiction, but there's a challenge. And so that's one of the answers is, we, well, we got these difficulties between the apostles. We can explain it away with mid-Acts dispensationalism. The other thing that um, makes me have to say, no, we can't do that, is that uh, John closed the canon. John wrote after Paul. Paul didn't have the last word. It was the apostle John who was with Jesus the whole time. And John is not an advocate of Pauline Christianity. John, like Paul, is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't have two church ages. We have one age in which we live. But let me get back to why we didn't do baptism. The theory was that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 cancels baptism. Because he says, I didn't come to baptize. Because he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize anyone except Stephanus and his, his household, and I don't know who else. And the theory is taken out of context and misreading the entirety of the, the textual design of 1 Corinthians, the theory is that Paul has rescinded baptism by saying, I didn't come to baptize. Well, here's the problem. You have to read the Bible in its context, in the time which it was, in which it was written, with the sense in which it was written. And here's what Paul's saying about baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You idiot Corinthians, basically. He's telling them, he's a mule trainer. He's training them, I mean, a horse trainer. He's really coming down hard on them in 1 Corinthians. He's telling them that they have become like unbelievers in their practices because they're dividing over who the under-shepherd is. Jesus is the great shepherd, the, sh the shepherd of the sheep. He sent these border collies into his flock to work the, work the flock. All right, and Paul's one of them, Apollos is one, Peter, James, whoever the pastor is, this is not the head pastor, this is the under-shepherd. These are the border collies working the flock for the, for the shepherd. And they're dividing over who their border collie is. They're dividing over the under-shepherd. And that division is idiotic. And Paul says it's carnal, it's fleshly. You're acting like mere men or unbelievers. You can look that up in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. And it's the concept of carnality, acting like you don't have your regeneration, like you're not saved. And with that is a spiritual immaturity among these fleshly babes in Christ. And they're not walking as spiritual, those characterized by the things of the Spirit of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit through the Word of Christ richly dwelling within them. And so there's no spiritual momentum with these people, and they're acting like unbelievers, and so they divide it over who baptized them. So in that context, Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you idiots. That has nothing to do with changing what Jesus said for his body, the church, under his apostles, to go baptize and make disciples of all the nations. You can't cancel the words of Jesus because Paul says something later than what Jesus said. It, it's, a, it's a broken theory that doesn't really let the text speak for itself. And that's why the repentance on my part, no, we, it's, I was taught baptism, there's nothing wrong with it, it's not an issue which means don't do it. The people that heard that heard don't do it. The truth about water baptism is it's an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he who has the authority, as he says in uh, Matthew 28, 18, he made it an issue. And now we 
have to submit to that. That's what we're doing. We're submitting to our Savior, who is our Lord. And He's our Lord whether we know it or not. And you don't become a believer by making Christ Lord. If you did, none of us would make it. No one sufficiently submits to Christ and to the extent that He deserves. But faith is not exactly submission Faith is the obedience of the command to believe in Christ as our Savior. And that's what God expects of us, to trust in Him alone. You can never say, I know I'm saved because I've done good works. You can only say, I know I'm saved because Christ has died for my sins. And that's what the Scriptures tell me. And that's what we're proclaiming today with water baptism. In Galatians chapter 2, another punitive epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote, he doesn't even give them a blessing in the beginning. He just says, here I am to tell you how it is. To the churches of Galatia is all he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he summarizes who Christ is. But then in verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And then he gets into what the gospel is. The gospel of Christ is not the ritual of God's command for Abraham to establish circumcision for the Jews, plus faith. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the gospel. There is no ritual. And if the ritual of circumcision couldn't save you, beloved, the ritual of baptism can't save you either. And that's an interesting theme too. The connection made in church history as it became anti-Semitic with replacing Israel with the church. The early church became anti-Semitic and started hating Israel and became uh, actually a a cause of of persecution for for Israel. And we completely renounce all of that. That's not biblical. It's unthinkable that people claiming to be of Christ would hate Israel since Jesus is the ultimate exponent of Israel. He is the greatest of all the Jews. No, we don't identify Israel ritual baptism with infant circumcision. I know theologians have done that, but we categorically deny that co-location. There's nothing in the scripture to make that connection. And that's why we, one of the reasons we don't baptize infants. The other reason is because everyone baptized in the scriptures is a believer. And babies are not believers. They're cute. They're a lot of work. They explain the lack of sleep and all that they are. But they're not believers. So we baptize believers since they are. But let me get into the passage that really talks about the focus on what we're doing. The controversy that developed around the gospel and circumcision dogged Paul's steps. And this is his first epistle that we have in Scripture historically. The first of many letters that he wrote. 13 that we have in the Scriptures. This is the earliest one. I believe it was written on the eve of the Acts chapter 15 Jerusalem Council when they talked about what do we do about all these Gentiles that are coming to faith? Do they have to be circumcised or not? What's the deal? Are they becoming part of the nation of Israel or is this something new? And the answer is the church is a new, one new organization internationally made of Jews and Gentiles who are believers. And so Peter got confused when he was in Antioch and Paul had to correct him. And the story goes like this. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch in Syria, the first sending church of missionaries, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, where James is leading the church in Jerusalem, Peter used to eat 
with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party, the circumcision, the old ideas of segregation of the clean from the unclean or making their way back into Peter's experience, despite his experience with Cornelius and his household in Acts 10. The, test, uh, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. The Jewish Christians there in Antioch joined Peter because Peter's important. He's the leader. And so they're following him errantly. And so, he, so Paul has to correct the, the error where its source is in Peter. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were um, not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For I, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I transgress by tearing it down. Or if I was right to destroy it, I'm a transgressor by building it up. Was I right or wrong in establishing the, the truth of the gospel? For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. How did Christ, how did Paul die to, to the law through the law? Jesus died for our sins and all the transgression of God's character, including all the transgression of the law. He died under the law. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. They say the most famous verse in the New Testament is John 3.16, which tells you, you Trinitarians, that God the Father so loved the world. It has to be the Father. He so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, the uniquely born one, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The most famous verse in the Bible tells you of God the Father's love that motivated him to send his son to die for your sins, John 3.16. But what we, what we want to challenge ourselves with, where in the Bible does it say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Where does it say in the Bible that Jesus loved me and wanted me to have eternal life, that he loved me and saved me? Where does it say that? Galatians 2.20. He loved me and he gave himself for me. It isn't just that the son submitted to the father, but from eternity past, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had each one of us, had each one of you personally in mind and wanted you to enjoy God's eternal life. So the Father made the plan to sacrifice the Son. The Son desired your salvation as well and willingly went to become your sacrifice. And what baptism portrays is the union that you've been brought into with Christ, that you've died with Christ and you've risen with Christ and now you're living and that your life is Christ's. That's what you're portraying by water, the water meaning the concept of identification. Let's pull it into some detail. After all, it's me and it's you, and let's talk about it a little bit. In Galatians 2.20, that first phrase, I've been crucified with Christ, is Christosustauromai. 
You may never hear another uh, breakdown of this and and the detail I'm going to give it in the six minutes I've allotted to do this, but let's do it. Sustaramai is a perfect tense verb. It means that the action of crucifixion is complete in the past. It's complete in the past. And it also implies that the completed action of the past has present results. That's why your Bible translated, I've been crucified with Christ. It's past completed action. And Paul can say this of himself, I have been in the past crucified with Christ. Two words, Christo sustauramai. With or in Christ, in the dative case, I am in a present state of having been sustauramai, co-crucified. Stalrao to crucify, where you get the word star, stalrao. Sustalrao is crucified together, co-crucified. And the idea is that you're right there with him. This word, co-crucified, sustalrao, this word is used uh, in two concepts. The one we have here where we somehow, by our union with Christ, were crucified with him. This is here in, in Galatians 2.20 and Romans 6.6. 6. And the other is a reference to the criminals on the cross crucified next to Jesus. They were crucified with him. They were sustareo, co-crucified, in that sense of being there on a cross at the same time. And the picture is pretty stark. It's pretty graphic. There, there you are with Christ somehow nailed to the cross. And nobody needs to have any nail prints. And this is not about mystical attainment of stigmata or any of these things that people have done with this. This is what happens when you trust in Christ, is that you now share in who he is and what he's done. You are co-crucified with him. The next phrase is, it is no longer I who live. Zo de uketi ego. What does this mean, ego? Ego is ego, I. And it's the subject of the verb. But the verb is interesting. In the English, they say it is no longer I who live, which is an okay translation, but the way they've rendered the present tense is interesting. The present tense generally brings you into the inner workings of the action in Greek. And so I would bring it out this way. I am living. I am living. And then he says, de, which is uh, the, the conjunction I'm translating so, I am living no longer. No longer I. And it's a Greek idiom, and it's, it's elliptical, meaning it doesn't have all the words that, that convey the meaning, but it's pretty stark, and you see what it means. I'm living, but not me. I'm living, but not I is the idea. So we can translate it as no longer I who am living. But notice that whether you say I live or I am living, right, it's the reality now. Do you see what just happened? You have been crucified with Christ. You now are as a consequence, living. The life you now live, that's the idea. Zede and Amoy Christos, but Christ lives in me. Well, we start with the verb, post-positive conjunction, continuing the, the, the train. These de conjunctions take you next step, next step, next step. That's what they do in Paul's writing. He says, he is living. He is living. Present active indicative third person from Zao. He is living in me. And then the, the subject to the front, to the end, like before Christ. It's pretty tight between the first two, the, these two lines. Zo and ego. Zao, I am living. I, not I. Ze Christos. 
the verb to the front, the subject to the end. It's really tight the way Paul says it. And you wouldn't see that in, in English, no way. And you read it in Greek 10 times and not see it. Uh, this is the first day I've noticed that I remember that I noticed that that's the way it works. He is living in me, Christ, or Christ is living in me. It doesn't say Christ lives in a general sense. It says this is the ongoing reality. Christ is living in me. And in plus the dative of me, of uh, moi, in me. Where does Christ live? In me. When? Now. That's the life we're living. This is the reality that we're portraying by ritual. When you first trusted in Christ, you were brought into union with Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's, this is the portrayal. What does union mean? I've been crucified with him, and so now I'm living his life. He's living his life through me. This is the idea of our union with Christ. And we call it positional truth because you keep having these phrases, in me, in Christ. That's positional language, so we call it positional truth. Now, this is the hardest part to translate. What, relative pronoun, what. Now, what, now, I am living in the flesh. So they clean it up in, in the English translation, and the life which I now live in the flesh. But it says, and what now I am living in the flesh? Whatever I'm living. Whatever the decision is, whatever the relationship is, whatever the circumstance is, what I'm living in the flesh, in this, in this mortal frame, whatever it is, is under an umbrella. And so they've translated the life which I now live. I could paraphrase it that way too. I live by faith in the Son of God. This main verb that keeps coming up, zao, to live. I am living. In faith. In faith. Could, in piste could also be translated by faith. And so in or by faith, zao, I am living in the present tense. And what is that faith? We have an article, but no object of the article because it's, it's telling you, uh, calling you back to this word faith. The faith in the Son of God. In faith I'm living. The faith in the Son of God. What is your life? It is not a one-shot faith decision for Christ that is the beginning of this life. It's very much like marriage, beloved. Marriage begins with an I do, but it continues every day with I still do. And I do tomorrow, and I do the next day, and I keep on choosing what I initially chose. And that's Christian life. To live it is to trust him. To disregard him is a functional death. You can check that out in Romans chapter 8 in the first few verses. That's walking after the flesh. In faith I'm living, the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There are two ways Jesus is described in this verse. They're both participles, and they're both saying he's the one that does these things. So the, he's the lover and the giver. That's the way the participles work. They're describing Jesus. So we focus on the verbs, but they're verbals. They're adjectivally describing Jesus. The one who, agapao, who loved me. I'm still focal, me. Everybody see the me there? That weird letter and then the E? That's, a, that's an M in Greek, me. Where did we get the word me from? Greek. Sorry. Just is that way. You know what me is in Hebrew? It means who. We'll continue. 
The one who loved me and paradidomi in the participle, in the same form as this participle, the one who gave over. Paradidomi, to hand over to the authorities, to give himself over. That's the language. How did Jesus love you? He gave himself over for you. How did God love you? He gave his son so that you could have eternal life. Who gave himself over? Huper plus the genitive of me. For me. Now, huper plus the genitive is an interesting prepositional phrase. And I've been taught to very carefully guard this one because it is the way you express substitution. Those who would attack the substitutionary atonement will struggle with this prepositional phrase because it means one in place of the other. The simple phrase, for me, is a little loose. What we're, conc- what we're suggesting is that this is a specific expression of substitution in my behalf, in my place, whereas I needed to be punished. I need to suffer. I don't get the suffering Whereas Christ needs the glory and the exaltation because of his greatness and his character, I get that because he took the nails, because he suffered for me. One of my favorite passages on baptism doesn't talk about baptism at all. In Luke 23... The one who loved me and gave himself for me expresses that love, as Luke describes, from eyewitness accounts. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Thank you, Luke, for that dramatic imagery. Now Jesus is in the center of three crosses. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Praying for those who are cursing him and taunting him. And they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He is, in that moment, saving them saving us and they're 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 doing everything they can to trample on that now there was also an inscription above him this is the king of the jews and one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying are you not the christ save yourself and us you can hear the way luke prefaces the quote you could hear the man laughing The other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are the, under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed are suffering justly for what we are receiving, what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Anybody that thinks the water saves you has a problem with Jesus' words to the criminal on the cross. It can't save you. You're not saved by anything I'm going to do. I can't be your savior by pouring, by dunking, by immersing, by doing any action. 
I'm just a preacher. I'm a Romans 10. Somebody to tell you the truth. Someone to tell you a testimony from my experience, but more importantly, from what God has said. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. He loved you and gave himself for you. There's nothing we can do to have Jesus say, today you'll be with me in my Father's house. There's nothing we can do. But Jesus did it all. He loved me. He gave himself over in my place, in my behalf, in my substitution. This is the reason for the ritual. Now, what is the ritual? There are two schools of thought in church history on what we're signifying. After all, it's symbol, and so it's tough since it's a symbol. What's the symbol represent? The anti-Semitic impulse that took the church away from all things Judaic to its great uh, and eternal um, shame and to our, our uh, um, just anemic faith because we don't know how these things connect. They have all kinds of ideas. And it's not, it's not strange to me, it's not surprising to me, that the anti-Semitic strain of Christendom got away from immersion. One of the arguments today that the, that the pourers or the sprinklers will say about baptism, is they'll say, well, you know, how are they going to bring water? And on the day of Pentecost, there are all those thousands of people baptized. How could there have been water in Jerusalem? Do y'all remember John Miles' presentation of the archaeology of Jerusalem? Do you remember seeing all the dozens and dozens and dozens of places for water so there could be ritual baptisms for Israel? Because that was a major part of their worship. Baptism for Christianity grew out of the baptisms of Israel. It was always immersion. And that's probably the strongest archaeological argument for immersion as, as the method. And I'm telling you that as an immersionist. I believe water baptism is to baptizo or to immerse in water. And we're not doing a water immersion today. We're symbolizing it because I don't think the water saves you. And so I'm not hard over about the method. I am not. It is to immerse, but we're going to do it by pouring. Because the water is symbolic of our union with Jesus Christ. Now, the poor sprinkler community will say, well, the Holy Spirit is the basis for our union with Christ, which is true. They'll also say the language of the Spirit is pouring out language. God poured out the Holy Spirit. So they'll say we're pouring out water, symbolizing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But the problem is that we are not identified with the Holy Spirit in baptism. We are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Immersionists universally say that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And while the water can be understood to symbolize the Spirit of God, the method from Israel into what they were doing in the church has always been immersion. So I want you to understand that. We will do an immersion baptism if anybody wants to be baptized in the summertime at the church picnic, uh, publicly somewhere. All right? We will do an immersion baptism. But today, given the extremists of Lisa's situation, she's asked me it's very difficult for her to even move from one chair to another, much less her body weight be under my arms in the water. Could we please just do it this way for this case because of the advanced circumstance of her illness? So I want you to see, I think we have a good example of grace and our faith. I'm not, I'm not saved by being immersed, but baptism is supposed to be by immersion. I'm saved by grace through faith, but I am commanded by Christ to proclaim that faith. And the great proclamation that starts your Christian walk by God's design 
is I am a disciple of Jesus and I've been saved by his grace and so I submit to water baptism. I proclaim my faith in Christ. I hope, I trust that your conscience is with me. There is no word in the New Testament telling you how to baptize. If there was, that's what I would have talked about this morning. The Bible doesn't give you a method. The method grew out of the practices of Israel. Jesus came up with John the Baptist out of the water. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 comes up out of the water. That's the method. It would have been immersion. But what the ritual signifies is that I forevermore have my life in Christ, and Christ is living in me, my union with Jesus Christ. And the water, the water is the symbol of that union. I almost want to say, are there any questions? But since this topic of water baptism has been such a controversial and challenging thing, the, the volumes written on it are immense. The emotions about it run high. If you have questions about this, I challenge you. I'll share them with the church. Run them, run them by me sometime. We could talk about this. I've explained why I think we should do it. I've explained what I think the right way to do it is, unless there's a medical reason why not. And now I'd like to do this in a proclamation of our so great salvation. So our sister, Lisa Baker, is going to come up. If I could have the deacons forward who are going to help me. And if we could get the kids from Children's Church, if they want to come and witness, Lisa proclaim her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, her so great salvation.